Hey everyone, Craig Baird here. Before I begin today's story, I want to take a moment and ask that you check me out on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. There are several tiers with great benefits, from ad-free content to t-shirts and other cool stuff. As well, if you're a fan of Canadian history, make sure you check out all of my shows, from John to Justin, Canadian History X, Canada, A Yearly Journey, and Pucks and Cups, along with Canada's Great War. And don't forget, you can also donate directly to the show at www.canadaehx.com. Just click Donate. It helps keep this show going. Okay, on with the show. I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canada A Yearly Journey. We're looking at 1884. On January 2nd, the Humber Railway disaster would occur, with 32 men and boys being killed in a head-on collision of a Grand Trunk Railway commuter train with an unscheduled freight train near Toronto. A young man by the name of Goodwood would see the eastbound train moving 50 kilometers an hour through a snowstorm and then see a second train coming down the track in the opposite direction, and that was the commuter train. He would tell the Globe the following day, stating he saw many of the men in the foremost car laughing and talking pleasantly together. Those men were on their way to the Toronto Bolt and Iron Works. Goodwood would close his eyes as the trains were only a few feet from each other. The freight locomotive plowed through the commuter locomotive, pushing the boiler of the locomotive into the passenger car. The steam from the burst boiler would scald the passengers inside. The mail described the crash as, Such bolts and rods, not of iron alone, but wrought steel, were bent and twisted like hairpins. The roof was splintered into kindling wood, and there was not a piece of it six inches square, but was split or crushed. The toppled fireplaces would set the passenger car on fire. A local resident, Mr. Tolton, stated what he saw. Bloody fragments of flesh and a detached limbs were lying about and made a horrid sight. Today, it continues to be the worst train disaster in the history of Toronto. On January 10th, David Scott was elected as the first mayor of Regina. Scott was not new to the role of being a mayor. After serving in the military until 1879, by which time he had reached Lieutenant Colonel, he would be elected as the mayor of Orangeville from 1879 to 1880. He would serve as the mayor of Regina until 1885, at which point he became named the Queen's Counsel. As a junior counsel for the Crown in the trials of Louis Riel, Big Bearer and Powmaker after the Northwest Resistance, he would raise in prominence in Canada, and was the first person admitted as an advocate of the Northwest Territories. Chosen as a justice on the new Supreme Court of the Northwest Territories in 1894, he would serve until the establishment of Alberta. In 1907, he became a member of the Supreme Court of Alberta, and he would eventually become the Chief Justice of Alberta in 1921, three years before his death. On January 17th, the modern era arrived in Ottawa when the Parliament Building's new electric lights were turned on for the first time. The contract to install the lights had been given to Henry Billsby from the Edison Electric Light Company. A small power plant was installed in the basement of the House of Commons, and each wing was furnished with 150 lights of 16 candle power each. The technology was quite new, and there was few Canadian companies producing electric parts. The sockets and lamp bulbs were made by the Canada Clock Company in Hamilton as a result. On January 23rd, John Jones Ross would become the Premier of Quebec. First elected to the Legislative Assembly of Quebec in 1867, he would resign only a few months later to serve on the Legislative Council. 
from 1873 to 1874, 1876 to 1878, and 1879 to 1882, he would serve as the Speaker of the Legislative Council. Chosen as Premier, he would serve until 1887. That same year, he was appointed to the Senate of Canada. He would die in 1901. On April 5th, Walter Houston would be born in Toronto, and as a young man, he would work various jobs while also acting on stage. In 1904, he would give up acting to marry Rhea Gore and move to Nevada to work as a manager of an electric station. In 1909, he began acting again and would become a star on vaudeville, which he was able to turn into an acting career once talking pictures arrived. His first major role was in The Virginian in 1929. He would continue acting in various films through the 1930s and 1940s, as well as on Broadway. He would receive his first Oscar nomination in 1936 for his role as Sam Dowdsworth in Dodsworth. During the Second World War, he would continue to act through various war propaganda films and documentaries. In 1949, he was cast by his son John as Howard in The Treasure of Sierra Madre, in which he would win a Best Supporting Actor award. The nominees for the best performance by an actor in a supporting role are Charles Bickford in Johnny Belinda, Warner Brothers, Jose Ferrer in Joan of Arc, Sierra Pictures, RKO Radio, Oscar Homolka in I Remember Mama, RKO Radio, Walter Houston in Treasure of Sierra Madre, Warner Brothers, Cecil Calloway in The Luck of the Irish, 20th Century Fox. And the winner is Walter Houston. I'd like to take a credit myself. Uh, many years ago, many, many years ago, I raised a son, and I said, if you ever become a director or a writer, please find a good part for your old man. He did all right. <laughs> With his win as Best Supporting Actor and his son's win as Best Director, they became the first father and son to both win Oscars. John's daughter, Angelica Houston, would also win an Academy Award, becoming the third generation of the Houston family to win acting's top prize. Walter Houston would pass away on April 7, 1950, just after his 67th birthday. On May 1st, Henry Northwest is born in Fort Saskatchewan as the Métis son of Louis Northwest and Genevieve Boucher. He would spend his early years working on ranches and as a rodeo performer before joining the Royal Northwest Mounted Police, serving until 1915 when he enlisted in the Canadian Army. He enlisted as Henry Louis and was kicked out for misbehavior and then re-enlisted as Henry Norwest. In three years with the 50th Canadian Infantry Battalion, he would reach the rank of Lance Corporal and proved deadly as a sniper, recording 115 kills. An expert with stealth and camouflage, he was often sent behind enemy lines. In 1917, he was awarded the Military Medal for service at Vimy Ridge, and the next year he earned a bar on his Military Medal, becoming one of only 90 Canadians to have that honour. Three months before the end of the war, on August 18, 1918, while on a mission, he was killed by an enemy sniper. His Ross rifle is currently on display at the Military Museum in Calgary. On June 22nd, the Lady Franklin Bay Expedition, led by Aldolphus Greeley, is rescued by Winfield Scott Schley. Of the 25 men who went on the expedition, six were rescued and five would make it home. 
The expedition had been launched in 1881 with the purpose of establishing a meteorological observation station as part of the first international polar year, and to collect astronomical and magnetic data. Two members of the expedition would make a new farthest north record as well. The first year of the expedition had been good with unreasonably warm weather, but by the summer of 1882 their supply shift from the south was forced to turn around due to ice and weather. By the third year, 1883, rescue attempts were tried to get the men who had been living at Lady Franklin Bay the past few years, but both failed in that attempt due to ice. In the summer of that year, the men attempted to go south to the Nary Strait to get supplies that would be left there if the position at Lady Franklin Bay could not be reached. Only 40 days of provisions were found at the cache spot. By the winter, with no chance of getting to Greenland or back to their wintering spot, the men had to winter where they were. Only seven men would survive that winter, with the rest dying from starvation, drowning, hypothermia, and, in the case of Private Henry, being shot for theft of food rations. On July 28th, William Fielding became the Premier of Nova Scotia. An ardent anti-Confederation supporter, he would win the 1886 election on the pledge of removing Nova Scotia from Canada. On May 10, 1886, he would pass a resolution asking Ottawa to release the province. In his resolution, he argued that the federal government's transportation and tariff policies and its failures to recognize Nova Scotia's claim for better terms had left it no option. He failed in this resolution and instead began to focus on developing the coal industry. He would serve as Premier until 1896, at which point he became the Minister of Finance in the House of Commons, serving until 1911. Then he became the editor of the Daily Telegraph of Montreal. In 1917, he was re-elected to the House of Commons and would serve until 1925 and become the Minister of Finance once again, and he would die in 1929. On August 27th, John Brownlee would be born in Ontario. He would enter into politics in 1921 and serve as the Attorney General of Alberta from 1921 to 1926. In 1925, he was asked to replace Herbert Greenfield as Premier of the province after supporters grew frustrated with Greenfield's leadership. Serving as Alberta's Premier from 1926 to 1934, his government would see early success, but the poor economy, the Great Depression, and budget deficits would begin to tank his popularity. It was also under his leadership that Alberta would implement the Sterilization Act. In 1934, he would be sued by a family friend for seduction, and a jury would find in favour of his friend, Vivian McMillan, while Brownlee denied a relationship with her. This would force his resignation, and in an attempt to run for re-election in his Pinocchio riding, he would be defeated. He would resume practicing law following his defeat, and would pass away in 1961. Despite the scandal of the relationship, Brownlee is still remembered fondly by some academics. In 2005, the University of Calgary ranked him as the third greatest premier after Ernest Manning and Peter Lougheed. Some have also called him the greatest premier in the province's history. On September 2nd, Agnes McInnes would be born in Prince Edward Island. He would eventually move to Vancouver and serve for five years on Vancouver City Council before being elected to the House of Commons in 1930. He would end up serving the next 27 years in Parliament in three different ridings. An outspoken supporter of civil liberties, he was against the discrimination of Japanese Canadians in British Columbia and pushed for Japanese Canadians to get the right to vote. In 1943, with his wife Grace, he would publish Oriental Canadians, Outcasts or Citizens, which called for the humane treatment of Japanese Canadians, 
but also somewhat supported evacuating Japanese Canadians from the BC coast for wartime security. He would pass away in 1964. On September 15th, the Nile voyageurs would depart Canada for Africa as part of the Nile expedition. This expedition was part of a British mission to relieve Major General Charles Gordon in Sudan, who had been sent to the Sudan to help Egyptians evacuate from Sudan after Britain abandoned the country in the face of rebellion. The Canadians were tasked with the helping of the British navigate their boats up the Nile River. This was the first overseas expedition by Canadians in a British conflict. Rather than being troops, the expedition members were civilians that did not wear uniforms. A total of 386 voyageurs, including 86 indigenous, would set out. The expedition would reach Alexandria on October 7th, and after six months, their contract was due to expire. They were asked to re-enlist, but only 86 would sign up for a second six-month contract. The rest returned to Canada. The remaining voyageurs would arrive at their destination two days late, and would return to Canada from Alexandria on April 17, 1885. In total, 16 Canadians died in the expedition. On October 15th, the press would be founded in Montreal. Today, it is still around as a digital newspaper with 204,000 daily subscribers. Also this year, the Parliament of Canada would pass the Indian Advancement Act, which would encourage the democratic election of chiefs. The Mohawks in Ontario would resist this provision, choosing their traditional method instead. The first Eaton catalogue was introduced this year. Consisting of a 32-page booklet, it was published in Toronto. In that first catalogue, Timothy Eaton would write, This catalogue is destined to go wherever the maple leaf grows, throughout the vast dominion. We have the facilities for filling mail orders satisfactory, no matter how far the letter has to come and the goods have to go. The catalogue would become a fixture of Canadian culture, spawning references in Canadian literature, such as Anne's House of Dreams, and of course, the hockey sweater. One day, my Montreal Canadian sweater was too small for me, and it was ripped in several places. My mother told me, if you wear that old sweater, people are going to think we are poor. And then she did what she did whenever we needed clothes. She started to look through the catalogue that the Eaton Company in Montreal sent us every year. My mother was proud. She never wanted to buy our clothes at the general store. The only clothes that were good enough for us were the latest styles from Eaton's catalogue. My mother did not like the order forms that were included in the catalogue. There was too much English on them, and she did not understand a word of it. When she ordered my hockey sweater, she did what she always did. She took our writing pad and wrote in her fine school teacher's hand, Dear Mr. Eaton, Would you be so kind as to send me a Canadian hockey sweater for my boy, Rock, who is 10 years old and a little bit tall for his age. Dr. Robitaille thinks he's a little too thin. I'm sending you $3. Please send me the change if there's any. In Western Canada, it was called the Homesteader's Bible or the Family Bible, and the last catalogue was published in January 1976. Our question today is, what does the end of Eaton's catalogue mean to you? W.O. Mitchell has written some hauntingly beautiful novels about growing up on the prairies, among them The Kite and Who Has Seen the Wind, 
And Mr. Mitchell is on the line with us now from Calgary. Bill, what does the death of the Eaton's Calgary mean, to, or the Eaton's catalog rather, mean to you? Oh, it's 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 a great shock to me. Uh, it, it it what it made me do was to to, to think back to to what it, it it had been to me as a child in the Prairie West of my childhood, uh, and, and and to suddenly realize that it had subconsciously marked me during those litmus years much more than I realized. I, I've thought a lot about it since I read that it was dying. Um, uh, I, I, it's just hard for me to assess. It Actually, it, it, was, it was to us a, a sort of window on the rest of the world in a rural, uh, isolated community, especially Christmas time. I mean, God, as kids, we'd turn to, particularly the toy section to look at those glossy bikes, which was where I first got my first glossy bike, mm -hmm. and BB guns, little daisy BB yeah. guns, and skis, and, and gopher traps, snowshoes, and a magic set. We didn't get them, but my God, it was beautiful looking through that window and seeing uh, chemistry sets, and mechano, and erector, and skates, and... Uh, then the, the, the things people did don't realize that the Eaton's catalog did. Now, one of the usual ones, you know, always supposedly there was an Eaton's catalog hung by a corner in, in a privy. Now, I question that, that it was as common as people assume, because those pages were really, you know, they were cruel. Re Regina leader, yes. <laughs> Eaton's catalog, no. In 1884, smallpox would spread to a town in eastern Ontario. Ontario at the time had amended its Public Health Act, which would get its first chance at combating a disease at this point, and towns could appoint their own health officer. When the health officer in the town fell ill, the people of nearby towns called in the Provincial Board of Health. Peter Bryce, who was the secretary of the Provincial Board, then ordered schools and churches closed, all public gatherings were stopped, and stagecoach service into the community was suspended. Constables would patrol the roads to ensure no one was moving who would carry the disease. Medical students were brought in by Bryce to conduct house-to-house -house vaccinations against smallpox and even had pamphlets issued to counter the claims of anti-vaccination doctors located within the community. Due to his efforts, the town saw 202 cases, 45 deaths, but the outbreak did not pass outside that community. In June of 1884, Poundmaker and Big Bear, along with other Cree leaders, would assemble on Poundmaker's reserve to form a plan of action as food and supplies were inconsistent from the government. To gather spiritual strength, they held a sun dance. The Northwest Mounted Police would disrupt the dance, searching for a warrior who had assaulted John Craig, a farm instructor on a different reserve. With 90 men, they told Poundmaker and Big Bear to hand the man over. Both refused, and while the man was found and arrested eventually, the two chiefs were instrumental in preventing a large-scale conflict at the moment with the Northwest Mounted Police. The first competitive game for the Ottawa Senators was played at the 1884 Montreal Winter Carnival. It was at this tournament they wore their red and black uniforms for the first time. Nelson Porter, who would go on to become mayor of Ottawa from 1915 to 1916, scored the first goal in the team's history. In 1884, the British Columbia government attempted to impose an annual poll tax of $10 on Chinese immigrants and to forbid them from buying land. The federal government would respond to this by organizing a royal commission to obtain the proof it needed to restrict Chinese immigration, with the excuse that it was in the best interests of Canada. 
At first, Sir John A. Macdonald, the Prime Minister at the time, was against implementing the measures to prevent Chinese immigration, but with sentiment so high, he saw the Commission as a good way to pass the issue. The Royal Commission on Chinese Immigration was formed after it was ordered into the creation by Macdonald on July 4, 1884. Two men were appointed to this commission. The first was Joseph Adolphe Chaplot, who had been the fifth Premier of Quebec and was currently a Member of Parliament and the Secretary of State of Canada. The second was John Hamilton Gray, the former Premier of the Colony of New Brunswick, a former Member of Parliament and a current Member of the Supreme Court of British Columbia. Through the inquiry, the Commissioner spoke with 51 witnesses who submitted testimonies and answered 27 questions regarding Chinese immigrants, what should be done about them, and should they be restricted. Most of those interviewed gave negative testimonies against the Chinese. An example of this is that 20 of the witnesses stated that the Chinese had helped to develop the province, while at the same time, 10 stated that the Chinese had also had a negative impact. The Commission would speak primarily with individuals in Victoria and some in Nanaimo and New Westminster. Many critics felt this skewed the report, as it was in the countryside that they felt the Chinese men were taking jobs, rather than in the cities. The Commission also found that there were 157 Chinese women in British Columbia and 10,335 Chinese men. The Commission looked at the immigration policies of other countries, including the American Chinese Exclusion Act, the New Zealand Immigration Policy, and the Australia Policy. All of those countries had their own tax on Chinese immigrants. In 1885, the Commission would submit its final report, concluding that there was little evidence to support claims against Chinese immigration. But I'll talk more about that in the next episode. And finally, in 1884, the Capel Indian Residential School was established and operated by the Roman Catholic Church and the Grey Nuns. In its first year, 15 students were enrolled at the school, and it would remain a boys' school until 1887 when accommodation for female students was built. By 1886, the school had 86 students, and by 1914, there were 280. Indigenous students were put in classes for half the day, and then spent the rest of the day learning domestic and agricultural pursuits. English was the only language of instruction, and the Indigenous children were not allowed to celebrate their culture or even speak their language at the school. Most reports stated that the education at the school was subpar at best, and chores and labor often took precedence over education that the students would have received. As with nearly all residential schools, the students suffered abuse at the school, both physical and sexual, which were highlighted in a 1999 lawsuit by several students who had survived the school, but endured years of mental trauma for what they had experienced. The school would finally close in 1969. That was the episode of 1884. Next week, we're going to be looking at a massive year. It's going to be a big episode, folks. 1885. If this is your first time listening and you like what you heard, please take a moment and give us a five-star review to help other people find these amazing stories. And there are so many for you to sink your teeth into. If you enjoy this podcast, then please check out my other podcasts, From John to Justin, Canada, A Yearly Journey, Pucks and Cups, and Canada's Great War. We love hearing from you, so if you have a show topic you want me to cover, email me at craig at canadaehx.com or stop by my website and social media. I'll include all of those in my show notes.